my name is Mark Beatty, Editor-in-Chief of Frontline Gastroenterology. I'd like to highlight some of the content from the September edition of the journal. The first article I'd like to highlight relates to burnout. When burnout reaches a pandemic level in gastroenterology, a call for a more sustainable work-life balance. There's an increase in concern about burnout, exacerbated by COVID, across all sectors. In an excellent opinion piece in this edition, Duong and colleagues discuss the issues with a specific focus on our speciality. This includes the many risk factors, impact of COVID-19, and more importantly, practical strategies to help minimise burnout and promote a more sustainable work-life balance. They highlight strategies such as avoiding isolation, being fiscally and environmentally stable, refining time management and documentation skills, considering professional coaching and counselling, and incorporating daily self-care practices. It's well worth reading through and reflecting on. Maybe something we will all learn post-COVID-19. Think about burnout as an individual and as a profession. Recognise it is the first step towards addressing it and resolving it. The second article relates to iron deficiency anemia. The management of iron deficiency anemia in secondary care across England between 2012 and 2018. A real-world analysis of hospital episode statistics. Iron deficiency anemia is common. 2-5% of adult men and postmenopausal women. If left untreated, it can have a significant impact on quality of life, particularly in the patient with a chronic medical disorder. Up to 10% will have an underlying gastrointestinal malignancy. In this issue, Brooks and colleagues use hospital episode statistics to look at trends in iron deficiency anemia related to acute and elective admissions between 2012 and 2018. In summary, there was a 72% increase in admissions and a 68% increase in hospital spells with iron deficiency anemia as the primary diagnosis. Length of stay was longer for non-elective admissions. Of note, the variability across the 195 clinical commissioning groups was high and widened during the study period from 11 to 55 non-elective spells per 100,000 to 18 to 118 by 2017 to 18. All in the paper in figure one. Very challenging data to think about and work out how best to improve on. So the authors have said that the interpretation of the data is complex, but they rightly point out that there is a potential to impact on this variance and increasing admission rates by service reconfiguration and improved algorithms of clinical care to reduce costs, which are significantly higher for non-elective patients, reduce readmissions and improve outcomes. The paper's editor's choice this month and there is an excellent accompanying commentary. The third article I'd like to highlight relates to pancreatitis associated with azathioprine and 6-mercaptopurin use in Crohn's disease. It's a systematic review of published evidence. So thiopurins, that's azathioprine and 6-mercaptopurin, have proven efficacy in Crohn's disease. 
Pancreatitis is a well-recognised adverse event, although the effect size and morbidity is not well known. In this issue, Gordon and colleagues report a systematic review and meta-analysis to quantify the risk. 25 randomised controlled trials met the inclusion criteria. The methodology and detailed analysis of these studies are in the paper. In summary, the risk of pancreatitis in patients receiving azathioprine across all contexts was 3.8%, with a 0.2% placebo. Number of patients treated with azathioprine to cause pancreatitis was 36 for induction of remission and 31 for maintenance of remission. Interestingly, there was no difference between 6-mercaptopurin and placebo, although this, the authors report, as a very low certainty result due to low event numbers and low patient numbers. Most causes of pancreatitis were mild and resolved on cessation of therapy. There are useful forest plots in the paper to reinforce their findings. And the lower toxicity of 6MP, probably an artifactual study effect, warrants further investigation. The fourth paper to highlight relates to anti-mycobacterium paratuberculosis therapy for Crohn's disease, an overview and update. This is an important treatment option which patients may want to consider. In this issue, Honop and colleagues discuss the evidence and they discuss the practicalities. The association of mycobacterium avium subspecies paratuberculosis, that's MAP, with Crohn's disease is controversial. MAP is the cause of Johnny's disease, chronic granulomatocentritis in livestock. Patients with Crohn's disease are more likely to have MAP present in intestinal tissues. Or whether this has a role in the pathogenesis or is merely as an innocent bystander is unknown. The authors review the evidence for efficacy of combination antibiotics targeting MAP, both as a single treatment and as an add-on to conventional therapies. They report on the potential for a vaccine. The authors then summarise their own approach to treatment. I thought this review was very balanced with discussion of the evidence for and against treatment options, but also insight was given into the complexities of the methodologies of trials, including disease heterogeneity and confounders. The pragmatic recommendation from the authors is that anti-MAP therapy for a two-year period can be considered for patients with refractory disease or in patients where immune suppression is not appropriate. Close monitoring for treatment toxicity is essential. The fifth article I'd like to highlight is Pediatric Cholestatic Liver Disorders for the Adult Gastroenterologist, a Practical Guide. This is an important topic. Many conditions, common and rare, have their onset in childhood and require lifelong medical input. Paediatric cholestatic liver disorders are a good example, particularly with the better treatment options, including transplantation and improved long-term outcomes. In this issue, Kelly and colleagues review the different conditions, including clinical manifestations, complications and key issues for effective management. Biliary atresia is the most common, 0.5 to 1 cases per 10,000 live births. Early surgery is essential before three months. Liver transplantation is required in many longer term. In fact, it's the most common indication for liver transplantation in a paediatric setting. Other conditions discussed include progressive familial intrahepatic cholecystasis, 
Allergile syndrome with its multiple extrahepatic manifestations and alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency, all present significant challenges with long-term management. This is an authoritative update, practical and focused, and will be very helpful to teams managing children, young people and adults before and after transition from paediatric to adult services. So please enjoy this issue. Please continue to read and join feedback on the journal. Follow us on Twitter. Listen to our podcasts. Access our Twitter debates. And check out the journal website. I'm Mark Beatty, Editor-in-Chief of Frontline Gastroenterology. Thanks for listening. <music>